Grace and peace to you in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The night before I left for the Marines, Amy and I decided to go and see the movie Titanic. In retrospect, I guess we thought we weren't miserable enough as it is, and so we needed to compound that misery. Amy cried throughout the movie. I kept getting dirt in my eyes. It was really uh, uh, perhaps not one of the better decisions that we could have made. Well, the other night, Titanic was on TV, and this was the first time we'd seen it in 13 years. It was about 13 years ago that it came out, and we decided to watch it, and I noticed as I began to watch something that I'd completely forgotten about. As people become aware that the ship is getting ready to sink, chaos breaks out. People begin trying to bribe their way onto to rescue boats. Men are cheating women and children out of seats. Panic has brought out the worst and a lot of people in this scenario. Well, in contrast to all of this, though, was the five-piece orchestra. This five-piece orchestra, rather than giving in to the chaos, takes its act to the top deck, and they begin playing their music as this chaos swirls all around them. I tend to see an example in that of the church. The church sits in contrast to the surrounding culture as the surrounding culture swirls in just craziness and chaos. The church sits and plays its music year after year after year. During every major religious celebration in the United States, the world around us takes the opportunity to gorge itself on consumerism and miracle on 34th Street spirituality. But the church just keeps playing its song, that same Christ-centered song every year. The world around us measures success by busyness, by the amount of money that's made, by the number of activities and the people that you can get to allow you into their activity world. More activities, always on the go. Well, the church says, let your activities be guided by Christ through worship renewal. The world around us says that you can believe whatever you want. And as a result of that, most people don't know what to believe at all. Well, the church confesses through creeds that are scripture-centered, that to follow Christ and that to know God in fullness looks like something specific. The church confesses that knowing those things leads to true peace because that's where Christ is. And so the church goes right on playing. We're a society within a society. We've rejected the loud, brash, hurried calls of a culture that doesn't know where it's going, what it is, or even where it wants to get or why it wants to get there. 
Well, today's Old Testament lesson teaches us something about being a culture within a culture. The Israelites, this pitiable subculture, if ever there was a society to be pitied, this was it. They've been the collective 400-year whipping children of the Egyptians. They're overworked, underpaid, abused, used, and mistreated. I can't think of anyone who would volunteer to be a part of this culture. And of course, the difficulty of their identity is that they can't see blessings. They can't see blessings in bad times, and they can't even seem to see them in good times. We'll learn through the following weeks that they grumble constantly. They're not an enjoyable people. And so this is indeed a dysfunctional family, but they're still a family. And they're a family that God has ordained to bring the gospel message forward to the world. God has heard the cries and the sufferings of this family, and he sent Moses. Moses has spent the preceding chapters in the courts of Pharaoh. Again and again and again, Pharaoh let God's people go. And again and again and again, Pharaoh refuses Well, God's about to do something huge in the nation of Israel. And to mark this very important night, he calls for a celebration. This is a religious act that Jews still celebrate to this day in remembrance of the freedom that God is about to win for them. But why all the ceremony? Wasn't God in all of his wisdom capable of taking the firstborn of everything without requiring this ritual sacrifice of a lamb? They sacrifice this lamb. He calls them to eat the lamb. He tells them to take the blood of that lamb and mark it over each Israelite doorpost. Why all the ceremony? Or, as one person asked me this week, Why can't we just be spiritual without the religious part of it? Well, in this example, we find out why. The religious stuff leads to even more spiritual stuff. They go hand in hand. Fast forward to Jesus. The blood of the Passover lamb is fulfilled through Christ's shed blood on the cross. Sacrifice. The ritual of eating the Passover lamb is fulfilled in the Lord's Supper when we receive Christ's body and blood through the sacrament of the table. The ritual that God gave for the Israelites preserved memory of past event for the purpose of preparing them for Christ. Now remember, These were not illiterate people. There were no scriptures for the Israelites at this point. And as a result, there was no literary means by which the Israelites could distinguish themselves from other cultures. 
receiving this meal and all the other identifiable outward rites and ceremonies and ways of worshiping God, this created for them an identity that carried forward to the New Testament church and continues forward today. But perhaps such things were replaced by the New Testament. Well, Paul gives us some insight onto how he views the law, how he views the ceremonies, how he views the working of these things that are unique to the church for the purpose of preserving and explaining the gospel. He goes back to those old fuddy-duddy laws that we now commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. And how do people know about these commandments? Ritual. Religion. Over time, people began to recognize the law of God by coming to where the Torah was read on a regular basis. The temple. In fact, this regular worship, with all of its elaborate ritual, became ingrained as an absolute necessity because Israel, in times past, had forgotten who they were when their religious ceremony began to slip. In 2 Kings 22, we learn that Israel had become unfamiliar with the law and King Josiah sends Hilkiah to count the money in the temple. Well, as he's counting the money, he comes across the law and then he delivers the law to King Josiah. And here's Josiah's reaction. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and said, go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. The rituals, the feasts, the reading of the law, the prescribed worship of the church, these were what Israel preserved. Take that away and you lose Israel. And so why in Paul's letter to the Romans are the people prepared to understand that the law is based on perfect love? Because they knew the law. Because they had systematically preserved the substance of their faith through the religious ceremonies of the church. Ah, but we're illiterate people now. We won't forget like the Israelites. Or have we? Perhaps we already have. The Lord's Supper was celebrated on a weekly basis for over 1,600 years in the church. Every time Christians met for fellowship, it was marked by time spent at the table. The creeds, those foundational statements that give unique explanation of who God is and who we are as a result of what God has done for us. Those creeds, those wonderful 
expositions of what the scriptures teach us about the apostolic faith. They're now rarely read in any churches at all. And how often do we forsake the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our worship for the sake of a watered-down spirituality where we're not specific about who God is or what those names imply? Well, the consequence is that we now have people in our churches who see nothing particularly distinctive about the Christian faith at all. Instead of being the orchestra that plays a beautiful song of Christ's redemption, we've joined the chaos of the world around us, and we've simply tried to doctor it up a bit. We use religious language, and we even invoke Jesus' name. But do we mean the same thing that the church has always confessed? I fear the answer may be no. Now, I want you to hear me clearly on this. Generally, when a person starts speaking about these sorts of things, people's minds immediately are drawn to the thoughts of instrumentation. I'm not talking about pipe organs or pianos or drum sets or electric guitars. This isn't a commentary on instruments, though I do think there's an argument to be made that the medium is in some way the message. This is a commentary on whether our worship confesses through our rites and our words what the church has always confessed. I ask you today, friends, how much can we take away from what the church has always done, always confessed, how it is always worshiped, and still maintain our identity. At what point did Israel cross the line? At what point did it lose memory of God? Like the Jews in Passover, we should expect that worship, the worship of the church, is going to shape us, not that we have the right to shape it. As we worship, as we pray, we will become a people of God. I'm reminded of this reality by an illustration Erwin Lutzer gave in his book, Pastor to Pastor. He writes, there was a man named Erbal who was a farmer living about 2200 BC. He worshiped two gods, one a god of death, the other a goddess of fertility. One day the temple priests told Erbal to bring his young son to the temple for sacrifice if he wants good crops. Erbal obeyed and on the appointed day dragged his wife and boy to the scene of the boy's religious execution by fire to the god of death. After the sacrifice of Erbal's boy and several others, the priests announced that one of the fathers would spend the next week in the temple with a new temple prostitute. Erbal's wife is stunned as she notices a desire written on her husband's face more intense than she had seen before. And, it, and she is overwhelmed to see him eagerly lunge forward when his name is called. 
the ceremony over, she walked out of the temple with her head swimming, concluding that if he had different gods, he would have been a different man. As Christians, we are spiritual and religious because our religious expressions, the unique rites and ceremonies, tell us who God is. They tell us what God expects of us. They give us a God so that we can become a people. And praise God, he's not the selfish God who refuses to communicate his nature to us, who forces us to devise words and thoughts and ideas that are disconnected from any sort of revelation by him, but something we have to come up with on our own. He's the God who enters time and space and reveals his love to us by dying himself so that we can live for eternity. He's not a God that calls for husbands to satiate their lusts through temple prostitutes or any other kind of prostitute. He's a God who reminds husbands, you shall not commit adultery. And to all, you shall not commit murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And as Paul reminds us in today's epistle reading, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Are we religious? You bet. We're religious because that kind of a God needs to be remembered. That kind of a God needs to be known in the worship of the church. That kind of God needs to be preserved. And that kind of a faith needs to be lived. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.